America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. The president of the United States, Joe Biden, had just uh, gave remarks about his first reaction to the incursion uh, by uh, Vladimir Putin's troops into Ukrainian territory. The White House has been reluctant uh, all day to use the term invasion, but then finally they have come forward and used the I word. Uh, just moments ago, President Biden delivered brief remarks, answered some quick questions before heading out and running away from the press. And in the middle of a fluid situation, uh, that's normal. I mean, the what is not normal is the fact that uh, there appears to be unanimity and it appears to be holding, including our sometimes erstwhile German ally, the uh, the new chancellor of Germany, Olaf Schulz, uh, has actually uh, gone ahead. They have canceled the certification of the Nord Stream 2, which is a pipeline that was very important to the Russians, at least so we are told. What is uh, Putin's game, and why now? Why at this particular moment, when everybody is still trying to cope with a the end of a pandemic, let us hope that it is the end, there is more on that, and uh, some celebrities who are joining the trucker convoy that is uh, trying to saddle up here in the United States. They're supposed to be leaving from California on March 2nd, right after the State of the Union address. Uh, there is also uh, more about uh, the coming contest for the presidency. Uh, why and what regard? Well, about speaking slots at CPAC, which is coming up this very weekend. We will tell you about that. We will uh, also be telling you about Brian Cranston, the uh, great uh, acclaimed star, and he's a fine actor, of Breaking Bad. Is he a fine social critic, too? He is talking about his white blindness and his need to change. And um, we also have examples of uh, Kamala Harris's inspiring leadership, but... Uh, we will certainly get to that and the charge that emojis are racist and that Jesus, yes, that's right, Jesus, the, uh, the, the Son of God, according to Christian theology, was in fact trans. And uh, an early indication of uh, someone heroic who transgendered himself. How did he do that? We'll be uh, hearing from a a Baptist minister who doesn't sound too much like Baptist ministers that I am familiar with um, actually making those allegations about a trans Jesus. We will be getting to that as well. 1-800-955-1776. Here is uh, Joe Biden's remarks about the situation on Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Remarks delivered in the White House uh, literally less than an hour ago. Uh, this is uh, President Biden about what the United States is doing in response to Putin's latest moves. Uh, clip one. We've cut off Russia's government from Western financing. It can no longer raise money from the West and cannot trade in its new debt on our markets or European 
Starting tomorrow and continuing in the days ahead, we'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. And because of Russia's actions, we've worked with Germany to ensure Nord Stream 2 will not, as I promised, will not move forward. Okay, uh, and uh, again, uh, moves from Germany today that seem to be in line with that U.S. goal, which is a very important U.S. goal. Uh, then there is this um, about our next move, President Biden. As Russia contemplates this next move, we have our next move prepared as well. Russia will pay an even steeper price, an even if it continues its aggression, including additional sanctions. The United States will continue to provide defensive assistance to Ukraine in the meantime, and will continue to reinforce and reassure our NATO allies. Today, in response to Russia's admission that it will not withdraw its forces from Belarus, I have authorized additional movements of U.S. forces and equipment already stationed in Europe to strengthen our Baltic allies, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Okay, and uh, those allies uh, particularly strong in, because uh, you can be, as strong as you can be. I believe Estonia, for instance, is a, a small country of about a million and a half people. And uh, Ukraine, on the other hand, is 44 million. It's a much bigger deal. But uh, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia are members of NATO. And uh, the importance of uh, maintaining the commitment to NATO was not lost on uh, President Biden, uh, making it very clear that this does not mean a war between the U.S. and Russia. This is clip three. Let me be clear. These are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. We want to send an unmistakable message, though, that the United States, together with our allies, will defend every inch of NATO territory and abide by the commitments we made into NATO. We still believe that Russia is poised to go much further in launching a massive military attack against Ukraine. Hope I'm wrong about that. Hope we're wrong about that. But Russia has only escalated its threat against the rest of Ukrainian territory, including major cities and including the capital city of Kyiv. There are, there are still well over 150,000 Russian troops surrounding Ukraine. And as I said, Russian forces remain positioned in Belarus to attack Ukraine from the north, including warplanes and offensive missile systems. Russia has moved troops closer to Ukraine's border with Russia. Russia's naval vessels are maneuvering in the Black Sea to Ukraine's south, including amphibious assault ships, missile cruisers, and submarines. Russia's moved supplies of blood and medical equipment into position on their border. You don't need blood unless you plan on starting a war. Which is uh, fairly obvious uh, and actually a pretty good line. And uh, the, the point about all of this is uh, Putin, in his hour-long uh, speech yesterday, uh, talked a great deal about Russian history, and, and most of it a lot of scholars would ev even agree with. But what he did not talk about in any coherent way or plausible way was what he considers to be the provocation for this war. There's a general sense of paranoia and the feeling that Russia is being encircled, but 
was Ukraine, does he really believe Ukraine was planning to make war on Russia? This is uh, the way Biden proceeded. Listen, this is clip four. None of us, none of us should be fooled. None of us will be fooled. There is no justification. Further Russian assault in Ukraine remains a severe threat in the days ahead. And if Russia proceeds, it is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. As we respond, my administration is using every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumers from rising prices at the pump. As I said last week, defending freedom will have cost for us as well and here at home. But as we do this, I'm going to take robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at a Russian economy, not ours. And then uh, finally this about our united effort with our allies. Clip five. We're united in our support of Ukraine. We are united in our opposition to Russian aggression. And we're united in our resolve to defend our NATO alliance. And we're united in our understanding of the urgency and seriousness of the threat Russia is making to global peace and stability. Okay, uh, this is a dramatic moment. We are going to be speaking to uh, a, a, a true expert on uh, all of these matters uh, coming up. Uh, she's uh, uh, joined us before, Anna Borshevskaya, and uh, that coming up on the future for Ukraine, Russia, and what it means for the United States coming up. Introduce And on the Michael Medved show uh, still reacting to all of the formidable events around the world right now and uh, Bill Crystal has a challenging piece where he asks about whether some of the neo-isolationists who have been very outspoken in uh, the Republican Party, unfortunately, uh, when some of them are going to look around, look at the world, look at the situation with uh, the axis between Putin and Xi, between uh, China and Russia, and reconsider uh, their their idea, like J.D. Vance's idea. He's running for the Senate in Ohio. And he says, why should I care about Ukraine? And the answer being that one of the most historic things that has happened in our lifetimes, and it is within the lifetime of most, not all of the people who are listening to me right now, we had a Cold War. It was a war that featured some heroes who were Democrats, like Harry Truman and the late, great Scoop Jackson, Democratic senator from the state of Washington, and a lot of heroes who were Republicans, including, of course, President Ronald Reagan, uh, President Dwight Eisenhower, uh, President George Herbert Walker Bush. And we defeated the most monstrous human tyranny, so we thought, for a long time. There's a, a piece today which is actually fascinating, a uh, piece by David Brooks that uh, actually looks at this 
and talks about uh, how 25 years after World War II, there are people making the joke as we fought World War II, and guess what? Japan and Germany won because Japan and Germany benefited enormously because America helped to plant democracy and a free market economy and this dynamic societies. They're, these are two of the most successful countries in the world. And they were countries that were monstrous, I mean, truly monstrous during the 1930s and 1940s. And for uh, the idea now that we had a Cold War and we seem to win that as well. Is Russia going to be turning out on the winning side long-term of the Cold War? That certainly is Putin's dream. Does that not matter to the United States? Does it not matter whether the idea of a representative democracy, a representative republic, a nation with basic respect for human liberties, does that not matter to the future of our children and our grandchildren and of our country? And the idea that it doesn't, that who cares about the level of killing or the level of punishment for forces that stood up in Ukraine against the corrupt prior Kremlin forces. And this is part of the thing that I've been talking about with people off the air. You have to look up and remember the leadership. For four years, Ukraine had a president who was a pro-Putin stooge. In fact, he lives near Vladimir Putin now. He ran away when he was driven out of office in 2014. Viktor Yanukovych uh, ran away, dumped his wife, got a new girlfriend, and camped out near Vladimir Putin, which is where he lives now. He's always on the Russian payroll, but he didn't even speak Ukrainian. Uh, but uh, when he got elected president of Ukraine, very dubious election, uh, he was later driven out by acts of parliament and then by people demonstrating on the streets. This is why uh, uh, Putin, in, in my guesstimation, is doing what he's doing now, is because at one point he was very active in Ukraine when he had some political support there, and there are a lot of Russian speakers, and uh, maybe 20 percent, maybe a quarter percent of the population that is basically ethnically Russian. They're different from Ukrainians. And Putin believed that that could cement his influence on Ukraine, except that side of Ukrainian politics has been going down, 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 down. Zelensky has performed better than a lot of people would have thought. And uh, it, it, it surely has something to do, the timing of all this, with uh, Putin's sinking fortunes in Ukrainian politics. Uh, we will get to that in a moment. The, the last thing, one of the last things that President Biden said this morning when he was giving his statements about, uh, about Ukraine and about the situation was this. Listen. Yesterday, the world heard clearly the full extent of Vladimir Putin's twisted rewrite of history. He explicitly threatened war unless his war extreme demands were met. And there is no question that Russia is the aggressor. So we're clear-eyed about the challenges we're facing. Nonetheless, there is still time to avert the worst-case scenario that will bring untold suffering to millions of people if they move as suggested. The United States and our allies and partners remain open to diplomacy if it is serious.
When all is said and done, we're going to judge Russia by its actions, not its words. And whatever Russia does next, we're ready to respond with unity, clarity, and conviction. We'll probably have more to say about this as it moves on. I'm hoping diplomacy is still available. Thank you all very much. And uh, then you could hear uh, Biden leaving the podium, uh, but the press wanted uh, questions, didn't really get a chance for them. Uh, listen. Thank you all very much. Okay, no definitive, uh, no definitive reaction on that. Uh, it, it's um, a a situation where uh, you can get all kinds of perspective about how serious this is, and what is very serious about it has been the uh, upgrade. And by the way, this is another reason why uh, Putin may have moved when he did is because there has, under both the Trump and the Biden administration, uh, there has been a upgrade of uh, Ukraine's defense capacity. And all of this gets very complicated, and it's a fascinating history. Ukraine, at one point, at the end of the Cold War, when it originally separated from uh, the Soviet Union, Ukraine was the third leading nuclear power in the world. They had more nukes under the control of Ukraine than China, than Britain. And what happened to those nukes? Why were they there? Well, they were there because, again, uh, the Soviets, it, to menace Europe, uh, felt they could have a greater influence on Europe and a greater and more comprehensible threat. It's actually almost incomprehensible in terms of how avid that threat was and how dire that threat was for so many years. They could have that by moving their missiles, the Russian missiles they had built, and stationing them, placing them in Ukraine, because it's further west. It's further close to their prospective targets. Well, at, at the end of the Cold War, the Russians wanted to take the missiles out. So Ukraine agreed. But part of it was the idea that they would be defended, at least to some extent, against any attack by Russia when they got rid of the nukes on their soil. So what now? We'll be speaking with Anna Borchevskaya of the Washington Institute's Foundation. Michael Medved Show. I'm very proud to welcome back to the show Anna Borchevskaya, who is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute's uh, foundation program on great power competition and the Middle East, focusing on Russia's policy toward the Middle East, and that would also include their policy toward Ukraine. She's the author of the 2021 book, Putin's War in Syria, Russian Foreign Policy and the Price of America's absence. And uh, uh, Anna, th thank you very much for joining us. I mean, it doesn't come as a huge shock to anyone, I think, the, the way that uh, Vladimir Putin has already launched his incursion into Ukrainian territory. One of the questions that I know is on the mind of many Americans, and I was speculating about it with listeners uh, moments ago, is why now? 
In other words, this did not happen during the Trump administration. It is happening now in the middle of the Biden administration. Uh, what What is it that would have provoked Vladimir Putin's decision to uh, send uh, Russian troops into Donetsk and Lugansk? Sure. Well, I think there's several factors. We, uh, of course, uh, will never fully know, uh, at least at this stage, but um, uh, at this stage, Putin is probably thinking about his legacy. And with uh, any new administration that would have come in, regardless, he would have tested it. In particular, with Biden, there were two major uh, issues, uh, two major da data points, I think, that suggested to Putin uh, a degree of weakness. Uh, one was uh, Biden's earlier uh, lifting of sanctions against Nord Stream 2. And second, the uh, the, the way uh, the administration has handled the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was absolutely disastrous, and it, it had so clearly uh, damaged American credibility. And in fact, Russian uh, commentators routinely talked about it, uh, and even compared uh, the Soviet uh, withdrawal into how at least the Soviet government, uh, excuse me, the Afghan government. Um, held several years after the Soviet withdrawal, but uh, but that's not what happened here. And uh, so uh, keep in mind that those two pieces uh, uh, have already come in, in a broader context of Putin for years perceiving the West um, as weak and basically convinced, convinced that he can go through uh, with, with, with this action. Okay, uh, right now, uh, should we be welcoming uh, these two provinces that uh, Russia is occupying right now as independent new members of the family of nations for uh, Lugansk and Donetsk? Uh, you think that they're going to get a lot of support and recognition from anywhere? I guess they might get it from Belarus, which is a separate country, but anywhere else about to recognize these new countries? No. Well, first of all, we should not be welcoming this because they, these are parts of Ukraine, uh, of sovereign Ukraine territory, and this whole thing is, an, is a Putin-engineered crisis uh, where Russia has already been uh, fomenting war for the last eight years. And uh, this is, frankly, very similar to what we've seen in Georgia with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, well, again, Moscow engineering um, a pretext for taking territory. And from what I've seen, there were only a few recognitions. One was from, I believe, a Syrian dictator, Bashar al-Assad, and the Houthis. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, right. So these are not, uh, no, there's absolutely zero legitimacy. Uh, this is absolutely illegal. Uh, okay. What what happens next, do you, do you expect? I mean, I know, know there's a lot of speculation about he certainly has the military power to make a credible thrust on Kiev itself, on the capital city. Uh, do you expect that that will follow this initial occupation? I think that's one possibility. Or uh, uh, we could see instead Putin taking more st strategic chunks of Ukraine, sort of going down um, down, down the coast. Uh, towards the to connect uh, with uh, Crimea, right? Uh, looking at the looking at look at the river, the river Dnieper, for, for instance. Uh, one way or the other, here's what I think we should expect: we should expect Russian military action, uh, perhaps as soon as tonight or tomorrow, 
uh, or in the immediate days ahead. One way or the other, Putin's rant yesterday uh, was basically all but declaration of war, really in all but a name. And we know very well then when Russian quote-unquote peacekeepers come in, uh, their intentions are anything but peaceful. So I think whether it's uh, fully advancing towards Kiev or maybe staying uh, a little bit more to the east, uh, one way or the other, this is just the beginning. Do you know, because I, I, again, things have been happening so quickly, are there any plans to bring this up at the United Nations Security Council, or can Russia block that given their veto in the Security Council? Right. Well, and there were there were already uh, there was a discussion, I believe, just yesterday and several weeks ago as well. The issue is exactly as you say, Russia is a permanent member of the UN Security Council and can block any action. And there's also no mechanism to expel uh, Russia from the Security Council because Russia would have to vote itself out centrally, and it's not going to do that. So uh, I think what we're seeing is also a failure. Uh, uh, of uh, of the, the the original purpose of what the UN was intended to, in in, uh, in, in what we should be seeing is really UN authorizing peacekeepers, a legitimate peacekeeping operation to go into Ukraine, uh, to stand against uh, Russian aggression, and it, it's a very tragic commentary on at present how far the unfortunately the UN has fallen from its original intention. Okay, speaking about the UN having fallen, I have been very depressed, actually, and, and alarmed at prominent people in the conservative movement and some in the Republican Party, people like J.D. Vance, a Senate candidate in Ohio, mm -hmm. who says, I don't care what happens in Ukraine. And he's even campaigning in a state that has, I believe, the largest Ukrainian-American population in the country. And mm -hmm. it... It's just extraordinary. What, what do you say to people who insist that none of this matters to the United States? I, I would say they're absolutely wrong. Uh, they're absolutely wrong, and th this will. Uh, this is this is the entire look. We're watching the entire post Cold War security uh, architecture crumbling. This aggression will not stop with Ukraine. Uh, this directly affects our American interests, and uh, the effects of this crisis have already been seen worldwide, and they will only continue reverberating worldwide. The other thing I would say is that, unfortunately, uh, the media tends to treat Ukraine as sort of a country on the periphery of Europe, but in, that, that is simply not the case. It's a country of over 40 million people. It is a country that um, historically had played a key role uh, in uh, several major European uh, empires. The area of Donetsk and Luhansk alone, I believe, is about the size of Switzerland. You're talking about huge territory, uh, massive uh, casualties, massive refugee flows. Um, in the last eight years alone, the, 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 this crisis has claimed about 15,000 lives, which is about as many people, as many soldiers as the Soviet Union lost during, the, um, during its Afghan invasion. So this is right at the heart of Europe and at the heart of world politics. It matters directly to us. It does indeed. Um, what um, what about one of the things that Putin had uh, insisted upon was no uh, Ukrainian membership to NATO. Do you think some of the NATO powers are reconsidering that? 
well, I think, uh, first of all, that this is simply not a promise, that this is not a demand uh, that NATO is in any position to fulfill, because that's not the way NATO works. And here, we're again, we're coming to a fundamental misunderstanding, Putin's fundamental misunderstanding of how NATO works. It is not that NATO takes countries in. That's how the Warsaw Pact was organized. The Warsaw Pact was not a voluntary organization. And uh, obviously NATO is. Uh, Anna Borchevskaya uh, uh, from the Washington Institute, uh, thank you for your commentary and your elucidation. We will be right back on a crisis-ridden day on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there is not uh, surprising news about the uh, Olympics. Uh, you may not have noticed because mostly people didn't notice much about the Olympics, but uh, the Olympics are over. Uh, they finished. And, and by the way, it, it, it does deserve more huzzas and hoorays. The big winner in terms of medals, gold medals, total medals, big, big winner was Norway, which is just great. When, when you have a country that has, what, five, six million people in it, and it's kind of tucked away in the upper reaches of Scandinavia, and it's actually perilously close to Russian territory, but for a country like that to uh, win the Olympic Games so decisively and so clearly, and of course not too much was made of that because people were too busy following the drug uh, violations of a 15-year-old Russian figure skater. Uh, but there is this, and this from National Review. The uh, Beijing Winter Olympics averaged just 11.4 million primetime viewers over the course of the Games, its lowest average ever since NBC took over as exclusive broadcasting network of the Olympic Games, Summer Games, in 1988. So for the 12, what is the 32 years that uh, the Games have been broadcast by NBC, this is by far the uh, lowest viewership. The uh, Pyeongchang Olympics in 2018, that was the last Winter Olympics prior to Beijing, had already shown a steep decline in viewership from previous broadcasts, averaging 19.8 million viewers, but now it's down very substantially, like 30% from that. Beijing represented a precipitous fall from that all-time low. Now, I don't mean to be <laughs> gloating too much. Did, I, I, I was just speaking to Jeremy, and I, neither of us watched any of the Olympics. And uh, the chairman for NBC Sports, whose name is Pete Bavacqua, uh, he knows why they got such terrible ratings. It has nothing to do with their coverage. It has nothing to do with the heroic efforts of the TV. It has to do with uh, the pandemic. Why? Because the pandemic forced people to wear masks in all sorts of uh, different situations and allowed few, if any, spectators and other very harsh protocols enforced by the Chinese government. Okay, the idea 
that if uh, people weren't wearing masks, that uh, people would be more excited about an Olympics in Beijing. Look, the the Summer Olympics coming up in 2024, I, it's going to be better, and I, it may it, it's going to be in Paris, right? And I, I mean, wouldn't you'd rather go even on a televised visit to Paris than to Beijing? Um, yeah, I've been to Paris. I've not been to Beijing, but uh, yes, it seems like a, a much more promising operation. And speaking of a promising operation, boy, there is a, there's so much good and important commentary, and I do want to share it with you. I'd love to get some of these these writers on. There's a profoundly important commentary in uh, the Wall Street Journal. Where else? Uh, where the level of commentary is extraordinarily high, it seems to me. But one of the pieces is by Gerard Baker, who's one of the editors at the Wall Street Journal, how the U.S. and Europe lost the post-Cold War. And he's talking here, as David Brooks was and as other people were, about how when the Soviet Union dissolved and all of these Soviet socialist republics, including Armenia and Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and Moldova and Belarus, and they all got independence. And all of a sudden, the map of Europe was remade, and it looked like this nightmarish fear that we had that the Russians were going to use nuclear weapons against us here in the United States. It all seemed better. And then what happened? He writes, uh, Gerald Baker, this is what makes the crisis over Ukraine such a pivot in history. It marks the definitive end of the post-Cold War era, the short period in which the West could, with steadily diminishing conviction over a generation, reasonably claim to have achieved the triumph of our values. Now that Vladimir Putin has chosen aggression, by recognizing the pro-Moscow separatist states in eastern Ukraine and ordering troops to enforce his decision, any last vestige of belief in the idea that the age of ideological conflict is over, that confidence is gone. We lost the post-Cold War. I'll willingly concede that this may prove too bleak an assessment. We don't yet know the outcome of Mr. Putin's gambit in Eastern Europe. It's possible he's miscalculated. Russia's economic challenges, blighted demographics, and over-dependence on energy. Uh, by the way, John McCain had that great line, said, Russia today is a gas station masquerading as a nation. Uh, over-reliance on energy, uh, endemic kleptocratic corruption, those are masked by the nation's renewed sense of strategic self-worth, just as the Soviet Union turned out to be, in the words of its British observer, Ivory Coast with nuclear weapons, so uh, Mr. Putin's Russia might ultimately prove a Potemkin superpower. Perhaps a Ukrainian campaign will be Mr. Putin's Afghanistan. Well, could be. But we shall see. And uh, it says that, uh, that demographic trends similar to Russia's 
an economy struggling to adjust from development stage growth to consumer level growth. He's talking now about China, that uh, vast financial imbalances and a dawning awareness of the rest of the world from its increasingly nervous neighbors in Asia and to its dependent business partners in the West, that this is a power whose ambitions have grown too large for their safety and prosperity. But uh, we can't let these hopeful speculations any longer inform our beliefs and actions, writes Gerard, Gerard Baker. The uh, larger problem is that we in the West, in the U.S. especially, have been losing the war from within. Victory in the Cold War bred complacency, a loss of a defining sense of purpose. We failed to meet the most basic needs of many citizens for economic insecurity, uh, for economic security, for opportunity and belonging. And in the process, we stoked resentment and political backlash. We fail to remember, respect, and preserve the civilizational, civilizational virtues uh, that had driven our victory in the first place. We failed repeatedly to exped expeditions overseas. And of course, what he's talking about is our long wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, among others. Waking up to the challenge from the uh, emerging hegemon hegemons, that would be Russia and China, uh, recommitting to a national security policy that resists them as we did their predecessors in World War II and the Cold War is a necessary but not sufficient condition for reversing this cycle of failure. The damage at home uh, needs repair. As voters survey the collapsed landscapes of post-World War America, post-Cold War America, there's rising hope for domestic political renewal. But we should remember, above all, that China and Russia didn't win the post-Cold War. We lost it. And uh, that calls on a different sort of leadership. And there is a general consensus that, um, that Joe Biden may have responded uh, keeping keeping the alliance together more effectively than people suspected. Uh, not so much Kamala Harris. In fact, Kamala Harris's comments from Munich and her whole performance in Munich, where she was an international uh, security conference, uh, are so disturbing and inept. It really raises the question about what is he going to do if he really plans to run for re-election? Is he going to keep her on his ticket? And who are the alternatives to uh, Biden that uh, Democrats may end up looking at? And uh, then there's the question of alternatives to President Trump. He has launched his uh, new uh, media venture, social media venture. How is that going? We will cover that and much more in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth.